Well, let's begin again this morning by reading our text for today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we're going to look at verses 5 to 8, but let's read starting at verse 1. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the, that, at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And we'll stop there for this morning. Now up until chapter 6 of this sermon, our our Lord has focused on who His disciples are, what, what they or what we are like, the kind of people that that we are in our hearts if we belong to His kingdom. A disciple of Jesus Christ is a transformed person. Now Jesus hasn't really said anything about how they are transformed, only that those who will enter His kingdom are transformed. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ that will one day enter the kingdom of God, one must be born again. He or she must be a new creature He or she must be converted. That is, there must be a turning from sin and a turning to God. And that turning happens by the the life from the dead giving power of the Holy Spirit. But now in chapter 6, the focus shifts kind of ever so slightly from who or what a disciple is to what he or she does. It's only a, a slight change of focus because who a person is on the inside in their heart will always eventually show in their actions on the outside. But anyways, Jesus now instructs us how to live out our transformed lives in our actions and in our deeds. And in verse 1, He gives this general principle, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. We need to to beware or, or pay attention that we don't fall into this trap of doing our righteousness to be seen by others. Our aim is to glorify God, not to receive glory from others. Jesus then applies this principle to the three common areas of 
of the religious practice of the day to, to giving, to praying, and to fasting. The Jews of the first century thought highly of religion that gave alms, that prayed, and fasted. And so Jesus kind of teaches us on those three areas and uses those as three examples of watching how you practice your righteousness and to make sure that you're not doing it to receive glory from men. When we do those things or when we practice any other righteous deeds, we're not to be like the hypocrites who do what they do in order to be seen by men. We're, we're to do what we do, in other words, sincerely. We're to do it to please God. Our aim is always to glorify our Father in heaven and to be like Him, never to receive glory from men. Now last week we looked at giving, and now this week we turn to this whole matter of prayer. And I should just say that as we kind of get going here this morning, that um, I don't know if you noticed in your outline, but I, I gave you lots of space in the introduction. So we're going to have a, a long introduction this morning, just kind of talking about prayer, and then we'll get in to the text probably about halfway through the message. So I just kind of thought might might be wise to kind of prepare you for that, and I gave you lots of room, just as we kind of talk about prayer in general. Jesus now gives us uh, an extended teaching on prayer. Right after the four verses that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus gives us the, the Lord's Prayer, or really ultimately the disciples' prayer. And in this section in verses 1 to 18, we see a very little bit about almsgiving. We see a very little bit about fasting, but there's an extended section on prayer. Prayer is one of the most vital religious duties that we can participate in. Prayer is critical in the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged. And prayer is one of the most fruitful ministries that we can serve in. An effective and fruitful Christian life flows from an effective and fruitful prayer life. And I just want to show you this connection between fruit and prayer in John chapter 15. So turn with me for a moment over to John chapter 15. I think you, you know this section well on the, the fruit and, or the vines and the fruit and the Father is the vine dresser. So I'm not going to read the whole section, but Jesus tells us that He is the vine and the Father is the vine dresser. And the Father watches over the vine and He prunes the branches on the, br- the, on the vine. We are the branches on the vine. We are the branches that are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are pruned so that we may bear much fruit. Branches bear fruit because of this union that they have between the vine and themselves. We bear fruit because of the union that we have between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him It is he that bears much fruit, 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ means that His Word abides in us. And so first, He must abide in us by the Holy Spirit. We must be united to Him through the Gospel. We must be united to Him by faith. And then second, His Word must be directing and influencing our lives. The mysterious union that we have with Christ must be lived out in obedience to His Word. And if He abides in us in reality, it will be shown by a life of obedience to Him. And so look at verse 7 then. It says, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then down to verse 9, As the Father has loved Me, so I love you. I loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So we abide in the Lord by keeping His commandments. And we keep His commandments because He lives in us and He empowers us through the union that we have with Him. And the result of that union is and that abiding in Christ is fruit. Now, now the, the fruit isn't explicitly defined here, but we can safely say that, that fruit is that which glorifies God. And so if you look at verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit then is, is likeness to Jesus Christ. It's, it's in our character and in our actions. But notice the connection to prayer in all of this. Did you, did you see the reference to prayer in verse 7? Look at it again. Verse 7, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. Our union with Christ and conformity to Christ results in prayer according to God's will. And prayer according to God's will will be answered, and that answered prayer will then glorify God. And so you see, prayer and much fruit go hand in hand. Prayer and God's glory work together. We glorify God through prayer, and and prayer happens as a result of this union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Union with Christ results in prayer. And just to kind of show you that a little bit, I, I want you to go to Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul, who, who we really know as the Apostle Paul. He persecuted the church, but then the Lord chose him and, and saved him. And I'll just read the story for you, verse starting at verse 1. But Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Sorry, still breathing threats and murder. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, For and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he had seen a vision, in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul was a chosen instrument. And the proof of his conversion was in verse 11, where the Lord tells Ananias, Behold, he is praying. Now Saul was a, a Jew and a, and a Pharisee, and he would have, like every Jew and Pharisee of his day, he would have prayed three times a day. But something was different now, and he is now truly praying. He was truly praying for the first time in his life and, and had actual access to the Father by the Holy Spirit. You see, salvation brings a person into a true experience of prayer. Because prayer is communion with God. Prayer is communion with God. And without salvation through Jesus Christ, there is no real communion with God. Prayer is communion with God. And another way to say that is that prayer is a relationship with God. In prayer, we respond to God. We respond in ways that He teaches us in His Word. You know, just for some examples of, of what, what it means to have communion with God and a relationship with God, you know, you might think of the great work of salvation in our lives and how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have worked together to, to bring us into this fellowship and access with God. And when we, we think about our salvation, we respond with praise or adoration. And that's prayer. That, that response is prayer. Or perhaps we recognize a particular way that God worked in our lives. Maybe He, He worked in some providential way to provide our needs and led us to a job or opened a, a position for us or providentially did something good for us. And how do we respond? Well, we thank Him. And, and that's, that thanking Him is a response of prayer. Or when we study His Word, sometimes we see our sin in a new light and we confess 
our sin when we're convicted of it. And that confession is us responding to God and what He's doing in our lives and, and asking Him now for forgiveness and cleansing. And that's a form of prayer. And another aspect of our communion with God is when we see a need. Maybe we see something that, that we believe would glorify Him in this world, and so we ask God to do that thing. And we ask Him to work on behalf of others or on behalf of something in our own lives to provide something that we believe would glorify Him, and that is prayer. And so prayer is a, a two-way, back-and-forth communion with God. We respond to Him with praise or thanksgiving, adoration with confession of our sins, and with various requests for ourselves and for others. And then He in turn answers those prayers, and there's this two-way communion and communication that happens with God. And the more we are pruned by the Father and sanctified by the Spirit, the more our prayers will be made in Jesus' name. And the more our prayers are made in Jesus' name, the more they will be answered by the Father. And so the more we grow in the Christian life, the more aware we'll be of God's work in the world. And the more aware we are of God's work in the world, the more we will respond to Him with various types of prayers. And so we're always growing in communion with God. We're always growing in prayer. Now that was kind of a, an, an introduction just in general, and I, I want to kind of bring it back to the passage now. And what we see in a, is a, a contrast in our passage between hypocrites and sincere prayers. Sincere prayers and people who sincerely pray. There's this contrast between hypocrites and sincere prayer, and there's a contrast between the way the Gentiles pray and the way true disciples are to pray. And so Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites in verse 5. And He says, don't pray like the Gentiles or the nations in verse 7. Instead, our prayers are to be sincere in verse 6. And our prayers are to be, well, I couldn't figure out a, a single word to, to summarize what our prayers are to be in verse 8. But we're to pray with a, a true knowledge of God. And that's really the difference in these verses. Hypocrites are putting on a show for men. True disciples pray to God their Father who hears their prayers even in secret. And the nations, when they pray, they heap up empty phrases thinking that they can somehow conjole God into doing what, what He doesn't want, want to do. They, they want to manipulate God. They want, they want God to notice what's happening on the earth as, as though He didn't. They think that, that they need to inform God about something that's happening. Whereas true disciples pray to God their Father who knows our needs even before we ask. We could say then that the difference between these methods of praying comes down to the matter of unbelief versus true knowledge of God. On the one side, we have the, the so-called prayers of unbelievers. And they may even be unbelievers who profess faith. After all, they do pray in, the, in these passages. They, they are praying, these people, but they, they don't pray according to the true knowledge of God. 
and we're not to pray like them. But on the other hand, we have the prayers of true believers. And we, as, as genuine believers, are to pray in accordance with who God is. We pray according to the knowledge of God. We, as believers, we know God and we commune with Him according to the knowledge of God that we have. And so verses 5 and 7 tell us how not to pray. And then verses 6 and 8 tell us how to pray. Don't pray like an unbeliever who doesn't know God, verses 5 and 7. Do pray like a true believer who does know God, verses 6 and 8. In the two positive commands, we see two things about God that should impact how we pray. First in verse 6, and you could look at it there, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so we see in verse 6 that that our, our prayer should be impacted by the fact that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. That's what omnipresent means. He is everywhere. He doesn't take up space. And we can we can get away from people and we can commune with God even when nobody knows. And then the second way that that the knowledge of God should impact our prayer is in verse 8. And, and the fact that the thing that kind of comes out in verse 8 is that God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is His omniscience should impact the way that we pray. The fact that He knows everything should impact our prayers. And so what I've done for our outline today is I've divided the text into two and, and focused on the two attributes of God that Jesus wants us to recognize when we pray. This section is about how we should practice our righteousness in verse 1. Here's how we practice our righteousness when we pray. This section contrasts our righteousness with the so-called righteousness of the hypocrites. Our righteous, our, our righteous prayers should be or are to be sincere and not hypocritical. And so I called this then two characteristics of God that you must recognize to pray righteously and sincerely. Two characteristics of God that you must recognize to pray righteously and sincerely. And, and first then we see that God is omnipresent. And second, in verses 7 and 8, we see that God is omniscient. And we need to recognize these attributes of God in order to pray rightly and sincerely to Him. So if you're a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to pray righteously and sincerely. You already have that in you. You already have this desire to commune with God according to His righteousness and in sincerity and truth. And you love praying, and, and this might surprise you, but you love praying because you love fellowship with God, if you think about it. You love when you see God work at your life. And when you see God working in your life or working around you, you very naturally respond with praise and thanksgiving. When you see Him working, showing you your sin, you respond with confession. And even you respond with certain requests when you see what He's doing in the world or what what could be done in the world. And so it's very natural for you as a believer to respond to God in prayer. 
Maybe you haven't thought about prayer in that way, but that, that is what, what's happening when you pray. And when you have needs in your life that, that you recognize, you turn to God and you ask Him for help. And when you know of needs that other people have, various kinds of needs, you pray for those needs. Now, if you're like every other believer that I've ever met, you probably wish you prayed more. And you probably wish you prayed better. But still, you do pray. You do have a relationship with God. Unless, of course, you don't have a relationship with God, in which case I would invite you even today to repent and turn from your sin and and enter into a relationship with God. Trust in Jesus Christ because through Him you can be reconciled to God and you can know this amazing God that is omniscient and omnipresent and you can have sincere and real and true fellowship with Him. But if you are a Christian, you do have communion with God because you are united to God through Jesus Christ. But even still, we have to be watchful. We have to beware, in the words of verse 1, that we don't turn what we have in our relationship with God into a, a hypocritical act to get praise from men. And so that was the introduction. The, the first characteristic then of, of God that you must recognize to pray righteously and sincerely is number one, God is omnipresent. And we see that in verses five and six. God is omnipresent. Jesus tells us in verse five how not to pray. And then he tells us how to pray with this recognition that, that God is everywhere, that he is omnipresent. Verse 5 again says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, notice, same as last week, that Jesus says, when you pray, not if you pray. When you pray, and you will, just like Paul, when he was converted, there was this instant prayer, behold, he is praying. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Remember, the hypocrites were actors making a a show on the stage, and they they were playing a part to entertain others. Hypocrites were not sincere they were they were acting and Jesus says do not be like them they love to pray it says they they love to pray but they they only seem to love to pray when they're sure that they would be seen and admired by others and so they love to stand and pray in certain places where they would be seen by men and their prayers were were actually more for men to see than they were for God to hear these praying hypocrites were, were much like the giving hypocrites in verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised, or literally that was that they may be glorified by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And so much like the hypocrites who would sound a trumpet before them, these 
Praying hypocrites love to pray publicly in the synagogues and on the corner of the street. Now apparently there was three times a day when the, the godly Jew would pray. And we see that practice as early as Daniel. Just listen to Daniel 6 and verse 10. Remember when, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed and remember there was this, this contract, this law written up that, that you weren't to pray to anyone else. And so Daniel, he, he now knows that this document has been signed and he went to his house where he, ha- where he had his windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And so Daniel would pray these three times a day. And in Acts chapter 3 and in Acts chapter 10 and verse 30, it talks about people gathering for prayer at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And so it was kind of standard practice for the Jews to gather three times a day and to have three times that they prayed. And they would pray the a, a rote prayer through the Shema. And there was actually even some other kind of prayers that they would pray at different times in the day. And it could be that certain hypocrites, certain actors, certain people who wanted praise from men would ensure that they were on a street corner in order to pray in front of the most people possible right at 3 p.m. And again, Jesus says, truly or amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. And the idea of that word received means that their, their reward has been paid in full. And there's nothing else to expect for their prayers. Whatever, whatever praise or esteem these people received from, for, for their prayer, that was their full reward. Now, when we think about our situation and how this applies to us, we, we see that we need to kind of dig deeper in our application. Because I don't think any of us are tempted to go and pray on the street corner. You know, if you did go and pray on the street corner, you would, you might get a lot of things, but you would probably not get praise from men. The one thing that you would definitely not get is glory if you went out and prayed on the corner of the street. This this would apply, this whole situation would apply to praying in church, but it's not public praying that Jesus condemns here. It's really the motive behind the prayers. The hypocrite's prayer is more focused on people than it is on God. The hypocrite tries to please people and really forgets about God, whereas the righteous person tries to please God and forgets about people. In fact, the righteous person is so careful about this that they pray in secret as much as possible. I say as much as possible. When you pray, there's this, this emphasis here, but when, when you pray, the, the emphasis is on the word you, you are to be different in the way that you pray and you are to pray in your room. Now I should say here that that Jesus isn't saying that we should never pray publicly. The prayer that he teaches in verse 9 and, and all the way to verse 13 is a, a public prayer. It's a, a plural prayer, and you could look at it there. It says it's a, it's a plural prayer. We pray to our Father. 
And we don't just pray to my Father. And we say, give us our daily bread, not just give me my daily bread. And so this this prayer that Jesus teaches in verses 9 to 13, he anticipates that it's going to be a public and corporate prayer. And so public prayer is okay to do. There's nothing wrong with public prayer, but the, the thing that's wrong is when I want to pray in public so that I can be praised by others. And so whenever possible, we're to pray in secret. We're to pray privately. And our prayers are to be to God and not for other people. And so Jesus says we're to go to our room. Go to your room. And that word translated room described an interior room with no windows. And often such a room was the only room in the house with a door that would lock and no windows to the outside. And so it would be the most private place imaginable in the ancient Near Eastern house. It would have been a very small little room, like a little closet, a security closet where you'd keep your valuables locked away. And so we're to go into that little private room and shut the door. And we shut the door for even more privacy so that people can't, not only can't see us, but also so they can't hear us. Because apparently the ancient people, they would pray out loud. Now when I pray, I often just pray in my mind, but apparently that wasn't done much at that time. And even when the, an ancient Near Eastern person read privately, when, when they had some, some little bit of reading that they would do, they would, they would read out loud. That was just kind of their, their practice. And so they would read out loud. And so now you're praying out loud. You want to do it privately. And so you shut the door in your inner room and pray. Now, now look at verse six again. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. We pray to our Father. Notice that He is already our Father. We already have a relationship with Him, and we are His children. We are His children. He is our Father. And there's this unique relationship with God, only available through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father is, is described here as He is in secret. Your Father who is in secret. We pray to our Father who is in secret. What does this mean that God is in secret? We see that same wording in verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so the Father is in secret and he sees in secret. I think we can get pretty easily that the father sees in secret and what that means. It means that he sees all. He, he knows all knowledge and seeing kind of go together in scripture. He sees us when no one else does. There's no hiding from God. But the fact that God is in secret probably means that, that he is there with us in secret. And when we come, when we come out of the public eye, that's when we can really have fellowship with Him. When we pray or fast in secret, we have a God who is in secret with us. Now, a, another aspect of God being in secret could be related to the publicity of the hypocrites. And so, so think about this with me. 
The, the hypocrites put on a public show, but it wasn't real. It, it wasn't genuine. It wasn't sincere. And, and the fact that God is in secret shows us that God is not like that. God is sincere. And He is genuine. And He is working towards His goals no matter what others think or do. He is in secret. See, God is our, our model of sincerity then. No matter, no matter what anyone does, God doesn't change. And when we pray, we need to be like God. We need to be like God in sincerity. And we're to focus on Him and not think about others. We need to recognize that, that He is there, that He is near wherever we pray because He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is our Father and He will reward those prayers that are directed to Him. And so the first characteristic of God that we must recognize is that God is omnipresent. And then secondly, we must recognize that God is omniscient. If we're going to pray righteously and sincerely, we need to recognize that God is omniscient. God's not only invisible and present everywhere, but He's also all-knowing. He has all knowledge. That's what omniscient means. He has all knowledge. He sees all. He knows all. He knows everything. He knows everything past, present, and future in one simple act of His mind. He knows all. And, and, he, and he has, this is amazing, He has never learned anything. God has never learned anything. Romans 11 verse 34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been His counselor? And of course, the answer is nobody has ever counseled Him. Nobody has ever given Him wisdom. Isaiah 40 verse 14 says, Whom did He consult? Who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? You see, nobody has ever taught God anything. That's what it means that He is omniscient. And so when we pray, we need to acknowledge God's knowledge. The Gentiles, they didn't pray that way because they didn't pray to the one true true God. And so verse 7 says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now that word there, when it says, do not heap up empty phrases, that word translated heap up empty phrases is a very rare Greek word and and there's some difficulty knowing exactly what it means. Just to kind of show you this, let me just read to you some of these, some of the other English translations of this verse. The New American Standard or the, the Legacy Standard Bible says, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Meaningless repetition. The Holman Christian Standard Bible and the Christian Standard Bible says when you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles. So don't babble. The New King James, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. The NIV says when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. Or the the Net Bible, the, the New English Translation Bible, when you pray, do not babble repetitiously like the Gentiles. The word 
most likely, and it's, again, it's hard to trace this back, and there's three different roots that you could trace this back to, but most likely comes from a root that means to stammer or to stutter. And the Gentiles would would stammer words over and over in a in in what would be something like a, a magical incantation. You know, you can kind of even in the word like abracadabra, you can kind of hear the the kind of sound that's happening there. The there the, there is this kind of magical incantations and syllables that they would try to pronounce, and they thought that if they if they could just pronounce something just right, then then they would get their gods attention. And so it's most likely that this word kind of comes from that. It, the word is, is like bata, bata logeo. And so bata, it's kind of like abracadabra bata. And so there's kind of this, this stammering sound that, that the Gentiles would make in their prayers. Now this might remind us of the worshipers of Baal in, in first Kings chapter 18. And so I want you to just kind of turn there and, and we see kind of some of this idea in the, the prayers of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And this, this passage records this confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So let's look at 1 Kings 18. We'll start at verse 22. First Kings 18.22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call... Excuse me, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, Cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so these prophets of Baal, they prayed, in quotes, they prayed all morning until noon to try to get their their God to answer it. And they, they limped around or they, they kind of leaped around. They danced around. And then Elijah mocks them in verse 27 in a, in a great little mocking that, that really reminds me of Phil Johnson. If you've ever kind of had a t- chance to get to know Phil Johnson. But Elijah, he, he mocks them. And then after being mocked, they cried aloud harder and they cut themselves and they, they raved past noon. 
And then Elijah prepared his offering and he poured water all over the offering and and filled a little moat around the offering that he built. And he prayed a a very simple prayer in verse 36. It says, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And so what we can kind of see from this story is that Gentiles and pagans, they try to manipulate God into acting. They cry aloud, they they rave, they cut themselves, they repeat themselves over and over. And they think as as Elijah mocked that, that God doesn't see or that, that God doesn't really know what's going on and that they need to somehow rouse him or they need to somehow get his attention. You see, a false God or a, or a false view of God leads to an improper practice of prayer. And the Gentiles would, would stammer many words and phrases because they thought or, or they supposed, or you could even translate that, they imagined that by their many words they would be heard. Jesus says in verse 8, do not be like them. Do not do this. Do not be like them because your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God doesn't need to be awakened. God doesn't need to be made aware of what's going on. He doesn't need to be informed. He doesn't need to be directed or much less commanded what to do. God doesn't need to be manipulated or conjoled or bribed or otherwise induced into acting. God knows what we need more than we do. God is more aware and more concerned about anything that we are concerned about than we are because He knows all and He is our Father. And because He's our Father, He cares about His children and He knows everything that affects our lives and He knows everything that will ever affect our lives. And so when we pray, we need to recognize this truth about God. Listen, We pray to a God who knows and cares about our every need. And when you think about that, it it makes me want to praise Him. We pray to a God who knows and cares about our every need. Now, how do we apply this to our time? Because I know that, that most of us don't, don't stammer or rave or leap about trying to get God to answer our prayers. Well, I think one way that, that we would apply this to the modern day situation is the, the what, and I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this, is the, the so-called uh, prayer language that, that some people speak when they, they believe that they're speaking in tongues. That kind of stammering and, and stuttering and saying things to God in prayer that you don't even understand yourself, I think that is a direct application to what Jesus says, do not do that. Do not do that. Do not be like them. Don't, don't pray and, and ask for something or, or talk to God in a, in, in a way that you don't even understand what you're doing. You're just, you're just wasting your time and doing exactly what Jesus forbids you to do. And really very much in that case, acting like 
the Gentiles do. And so I think this kind of modern idea of a tongues prayer language when people don't even understand what they're saying and they're just saying kind of random phrases like, I like what one of my seminary professors, he taught me, should have bought a Honda, but I bought a Kia. Do you kind of ever, ever hear that? Should have bought a Honda. Some people think that they're, they make sounds like that and they think they're actually praying. You like that one, Pete, because you're like, yeah, you should have bought a Honda or you probably have your own kind of vehicle, but you could put in there. But that, that kind of a, um, that kind of nonsense prayer language, I think is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Another, way that we might apply this to our own time and to our own situation is when we think that if we prayed longer or more eloquently that God would somehow answer our prayers when we did that, um, that I think that applies as well. We don't need necessarily long prayers. We don't need super flowing, amazing prayers to get God to answer us. That's not going to conjole God into doing anything or manipulate Him if we could just say something right. He just wants us to sincerely pray in the words that come to our mind and to really ask Him and have a sincere and real relationship with Him in prayer. That's what we're to do. And so do not be like them because your Father knows what we need. Now some people ask or wonder then, if God knows our needs before we ask Him, why should we pray? Why pray if God knows before we ask? Well, again, prayer is, is responding to God and to the needs that, that He brought about in our lives, to the needs that we are facing in His providence. And we are in a relationship with God. Just imagine if you kind of took that same attitude with your spouse. You know, imagine a relationship with your spouse if you never spoke to them or, or they never spoke to you about things you already know. Right? Imagine in the morning if, if, you know, if I said, and I've heard this before, it's a terrible thing. I, I love, you know, I don't tell my wife I love her because I already told her, you know, 20 years ago and I, I haven't changed. That, you know, that would be a real, that would, wouldn't be good for our relationship, right? Uh, you know, even, even like in the morning, every morning, Jody and I have coffee together and we drink our coffee and we're like, this is good coffee. And we're just, we're just making communications. We're just responding. Now, Jody already knows, and I already know that the coffee's good. We, you know, we've drank it every morning for the last couple of years, but we communicate, we express ourselves to one another because we're in relationship with one another. And we do the same with God. We respond to Him with thanksgiving and praise and requests because we're in a relationship with Him. But even more, when we think, why do we pray if God already knows? Well, we, we pray because God does promise to answer our prayers. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Now, prayer does not change God's knowledge of the future. Right? God, it doesn't, prayer doesn't change God's eternal, unchangeable decree. But prayer does have an effect on what happens in the world. God answers prayer and He does things we ask, and by those prayers, we bear much fruit and God is glorified. And so we work together with God when, when He moves us to pray, and then He answers those prayers in amazing ways. He has decreed both our prayers and the answers to those prayers so that we can relate with this invisible God by faith. 
And so prayer does change things. And just to, to prove that to you, just listen to the, the second half of James 4.2. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. See, the, the, the people to whom James wrote, they did not have certain things because they did not ask for those things. And so prayer does change things, at least from the human perspective. And so we need to recognize the necessity of prayer, and we need to recognize the God to whom we pray. When we pray, we pray to an all-knowing, ever-present God. And we don't need to manipulate Him with our words. We don't need anyone to hear besides Him. The hypocrites, they used prayer to get praise from men. The Gentiles used prayer to get their desires from God. But both groups were actually focused on themselves in that thing. And they weren't focused on God. The, the hypocrites were focused on themselves because they wanted praise and recognition. The Gentiles were focused on themselves because they wanted to get their selfish and sinful desires out of God by their, their manner of praying. But we are not to be like that. Jesus says, don't pray like that. We, we're to recognize the God to whom we pray. He is your Father. He is present everywhere. He is all-knowing. And your reward is with Him because He Himself is your reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this passage on prayer. We thank You that You teach us how to pray and that You've allowed us to have a relationship with You in which we can pray. We thank you for the mysterious way in which you know everything and yet still answer our prayer and that our prayers do change things in the, in the future, at least from our perspective. We don't understand maybe how all of that works, but we do see the way that you answer our prayers and we're so thankful. We thank you for the, the way that, that you reveal yourself to us and, and we respond to you by faith first in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then by thanksgiving and praise and adoration. And so we pray now that you would help us as we even now again sing your praise and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.